In Mark chapter 5, we're continuing our way through the book of Mark, taking a look at the person of Jesus. We've looked over the last several weeks at his person, his power. We've seen him steal storms. We've seen him cast out demons. And this morning we come to a text that's two stories that are wedded together, I think, into one to make a point for us. In Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, we'll read down through verse 43 together. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it. Beginning in verse 21 of Mark 5, Mark writes, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see what, who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone, someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, I don't know about you, but as an American who's living in the suburbs of one of our nation's urban metro centers, where we're accustomed to things happening very, very quickly, we do not wait well, do we? I can remember a couple of years ago after church one Sunday, us and several other families went to lunch together at a local restaurant, an establishment in Roy City. I will not name the restaurant by name since this is being recorded by video and audio, um, but to tell you that we went to a local restaurant in Roy City and the restaurant was relatively empty. There may, be, may have been two or three other patrons seated at tables in the restaurant. 
And so we went in. Granted, we were a pretty large party, okay? So there was three or four families along with their kids. And so we went in. They sat us at some tables. And we proceeded to peruse the menu, order some drinks. And then we, it took a while for the waitress actually to come back with our drinks. And then when she came back with our drinks, we were now ready to order from the menu. And so we proceeded to place an order from the menu for like simple things like chicken tenders and hamburgers and french fries those kinds of we weren't making duck a la range okay so simple things kind of bar and grill type food and so we proceed to enjoy our drinks have conversation and then we begin to watch the clock you guys ever been there before where you're just waiting anxiously anticipating the food to be delivered particularly the children Okay, I don't know if you're familiar with the term hangry, okay? But this is what began to take place in the lives of some of the adults and the lives of the kids. Because we waited for nearly two hours for our food to be delivered to our table. And we're just writhing. I can, we can feel our stomachs grumbling as we're waiting. And so that stomach grumbling turned into vocal grumbling as well as we were trying to have a nice fellowship after a Sunday service. But that story reminds me of the fact that as we waited and waited and waited, there was a delay and a delay and a delay. But we were growing impatient and anxious and frustrated. In fact, we have yet to return to said source of, of, of said establishment, okay? But listen, we don't wait well. We don't deal with delays well. And listen, there are things bigger in life that we're waiting for than chicken tenders and hamburgers and french fries, aren't there? There are things that seem to be delayed in our lives that are bigger than the order that we place at a restaurant. And so what do we do when we're in the midst of that waiting if we're not to become people who would grumble and whose stomachs would cause them vocally to express their displeasure and frustration as we wait for bigger things in life. See, these two stories that we just read together, one about the ruler of a synagogue and the other about an unnamed woman, are married together in Mark's gospel to teach us something about the nature and the object of faith in the midst of our waiting. Now listen, these two stories share lots of things in common why I believe they're wedded together to make, make a point for us. Listen to some of the things they share in common. Both stories involve females healed by the touch of Jesus. In both stories, the women are called by terms of affection, daughters, and little girl. The length of the woman's illness and the age of the girl are both 12. In both stories, Jesus is met by rebuke and disbelief. Both Jairus and the woman fall at Jesus' feet, recognizing His superiority and their submission. In both stories, they bring Jesus into contact with uncleanness, this hemorrhaging that's been going on for 12 years, and this little girl who is recently deceased. In fact, this, the idea of uncleanness connects all the stories in Mark chapter 5. Earlier in the, in, the, in, the, in the chapter we saw last week that Jesus shows up in an unclean region amongst unclean people with unclean spirits and unclean animals. And now he's got an unclean woman and an unclean little girl. All by the Jewish ceremonial law, all these things are unclean. And in each story in Mark chapter 5, listen, I want you to hear this. All human wisdom is exhausted 
and all human hope is lost. Every single one of these instances of these three stories in Mark chapter 5, each of them result in the characters and them being reaching what we might call a dead end. A dead end. So what do we do in the midst of our waiting whenever all human hope seems to be exhausted and all human wisdom seems to be exhausted? How do we wait on the things that matter most in life? What do we learn about that in this text? First of all, listen, I want you to see this, that Jesus is not bound by our schedule. Let me say that again. Jesus is not bound by our schedule. Now listen, can you imagine the urgency of Jairus? As he approaches Jesus, Jesus being followed by this crowd, as he's crossed back over from the region of the Gerasenes, and he finds himself being approached by Jairus, this ruler of a synagogue, an influential individual. Okay, so he'd been a person of importance and of influence, of wealth and of status within the community. And Jairus comes to Jesus, throwing himself at his feet and says, Jesus, if you would but come and lay hands on my daughter who is on her deathbed. She is sick to the point of death. Okay? If you would come but lay hands on her and touch her, she would be healed and live. Imagine the urgency she, he feels knowing that his daughter's on her deathbed with this high fever. Listen, those of us who have had sick children, and, and not just the common cold, but those things that, are, that, are, that, are, that, that could threaten to take their lives, we understand that urgency. We understand what it is to be absolutely, absolutely dependent and, 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 and needy in those types of moments. And yet Jesus, at his request, begins to make his way toward Jairus' house, but he experiences an interruption. And listen, Jesus takes the time to seek out and engage an unnamed, isolated female outcast with a chronic problem. While this named, listen, this named, well-connected and influential male with an acute problem is made to wait. Now listen, in the medical field, I'm not sure if you're aware this would be called malpractice. If somebody came in with a chronic issue, and somebody came in with an acute, uh, an older woman came in with a chronic problem, and a, a little girl came in with an acute problem, and the doctors treated the girl with a chronic, the older woman with a chronic problem first, and the girl with the acute problem died, he'd have a lawsuit on his hands. It's called malpractice, but not so here in the text. Okay? Listen. When Jesus is encountered, he's delayed by this unnamed woman. And, and through the process of being delayed, of Jairus having to wait, he receives word from one of his servants that his daughter has died. His daughter has died. And you can imagine the heartbreak that he feels. The urgency that he felt to bring in to Jesus. Now the heartbreak that he feels of knowing that his daughter has breathed her last breath. Listen. Jesus cannot be bound by our schedule. See, what, what, one of the things that we learn from this is that when Jer what Jairus came to Jesus wanting is his daughter to be healed of a fever, but what he got would be a resurrection. Because oftentimes, whenever we come to Jesus, we end up receiving more than we expected, but we also end up giving more than we anticipated. 
Because, listen, Jesus, Jairus believes that Jesus can heal his daughter of the fever, but he's going to call her, him to believe that he can raise his daughter from the dead. See, listen, one of the things you've got to consider is that God's timing, God's sense of timing will always confound ours. Listen, I've had the opportunity to travel to different cultures and different places around the world. I've been in Russia, I've been in South Africa, I've been in Hispanic cultures down in Central, South and Central America. And listen, as I've traveled around the globe and experienced time as it's seen through the lens of different cultures, listen, there is no culture outside of ours that is as hung up on start times and finish times. You know that? You go to other places around the world and you walk in and listen, you, you, like I've gone to church in other places around the world and the scheduled start time is 10 a.m. You walk in at 9.50 and you're waiting and then you're looking at your watch. It's 10.05, it's 10.10, it's 10.30 and there's still nobody in the room. And all of a sudden the music starts and, all, and like because they know people are going to come in at 10.43. And so the music starts at 10.40 and then people begin to make their way in because people in other parts of the world are not as bound by time. They have a different view. They look at time through a different lens. Every culture sees it differently. And listen, no matter what culture you're from though, Listen, God's view of time will always confound ours because God is infinite, God is holy, and God is sovereign. So He is infinite. He's not limited like we are. We're finite creatures. God is infinite. Okay, He is holy, distinct, and separate from us. And He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And so His view of time will always confound ours. Okay, now listen. If we, and one of the things we learn from this is that if we try to impose our understanding of timing and scheduling on God, we'll never feel loved by Him. We'll never feel loved by Him. Because we will always think that there is some kind of irrational delay, unloving delay. He's making us wait for something that we need now. See, Jesus in his delay, he's not saying, right, there's a delay, but I love you anyway, right? You can't hurry me, but I love you anyway. What he's saying is, because I love you, there is a delay. Because in the delay, what have we, we learn so much about him, and we learn so much about ourselves. I've learned more about God by having to wait than I have by him delivering what I wanted in a moment. Haven't you? I think all of us have. So Jesus is not bound by our schedules. Listen, the delays of God, what we find out in this text, the delays of God are an opportunity for us to keep on believing, to keep on trusting. In fact, whenever Jairus receives the word of his daughter's passing, Jesus, his servant says, listen, why are you going to trouble the teacher any longer? She's dead. D-E-A-D, dead. And Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, what? Don't be afraid. Only believe. And that word believe, the verb there, listen. We get a little technical this morning. I do this every once in a while, so just go with me. Because hopefully you'll have a little aha moment. All right? The word believe there in the Greek text is an imperfect verb. It's an imperfect tense. Now, the imperfect tense in the Greek text 
It indicates an action that began in the past and it continues into the present. Okay, so something that was started back here and it continues here, now, today, right now, in this moment. And so what Jesus is saying to Jairus, he says, you came to me in faith, now continue with me in faith. You came to me believing that I could do something to remedy the situation. Now continue believing that I can do something to remedy the situation, even though the situation has changed. Even though there's been a shift. Your faith started here in the past. You came to me, threw yourself at my feet, pleading for your daughter's life. Now believe that I can make her live. You see that? The delays of God are an opportunity for us to keep on believing. To keep on trusting. So in the midst of of when God is not giving what we want, when God is not responding to our schedule, when God is not in alignment with our timing, how do we, what, what we need the most is to keep believing. It's what Jairus needed and it's what we need. But what kind of believing do we need? And that's what I believe is in the center in that, of that sandwich. You got Jairus on this end, Jairus on this end. Right, the two slices of bread and you got the meat in the middle. Okay? So I believe the kind of faith that we need, we're taught about in the middle, in the meat. Let's take a look at that. What do we need in the midst of all the delays of God, all of our waiting, is what we need is active trust in the face of exhaustion and despair. Active trust in the face of exhaustion and despair. I want you to look at the woman's situation. This woman who comes to Jesus and touches the hem of his garment. Listen, consider three things about her. First of all, her physical status. She was hemorrhaging. She was bloody. Listen, try to put this as appropriately as possible. But listen, her monthly house guest had arrived. And not just for a three-day weekend, but for 12 days years 12 years she had been discharging blood she had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and as a result she had pursued remedy after remedy after remedy cure after cure after cure she suffered under many physicians we're told she sought multiple second third fourth opinions from every doctor that she could find And she went through all of the remedies they prescribed for her. Listen to some of the remedies that were prescribed for this in the ancient world. First, drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. So she tried that. Exhausted herself under many physicians. Two, a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine and administered with the summons arise out of your flow of blood. That was another remedy prescribed in the ancient world. Three, Sudden shock, like boo, right? And scared out of you. Fourth, the carrying of the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain type of cloth. Now, these are all the remedies that are prescribed for this particular ailment in the ancient world. She's been through all of them. And they each initially offered hope, but left her frustrated and disappointed. Her progress, her prognosis was negative. Her improvement was only, there was no improvement. She just declined and declined and declined and declined. And she continued that way for 12 years, over a decade of her life. Can you imagine 
This, all human wisdom has been exhausted. All human hope has been lost. And here she is still in her discharge of blood. Her bloody status continues. Her physical status, but also consider her financial status. Listen, the text tells us she had spent all she had. She had leveraged every dollar, every dime for a cure. She had tapped out all of her worldly resources, her savings, her retirement, her 401k is empty. Okay? Listen, that's the situation that she finds herself in. But then third, consider her social status. On account of this discharge, she had been isolated from the covenant community for 12 years. 12 years. The purity laws in Leviticus chapter 15 say that due to her uncleanness, she was not to have contact with God's people. In Leviticus chapter 15, beginning in verse 25, I'll read it to you. It says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has, that's in there, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. And when you were unclean, you were avoided, you were ostracized, you were an outcast. So consider this, she's suffering physically. You imagine the anemia she's probably living with as she continues to bleed for 12 years. You can imagine her financial status of utter and abject poverty and her social status of being an outcast separated from human contact. She's resigned to this life of bleeding, poverty, and isolation. And in verse 27, we're told she had heard the reports about Jesus. She had heard the reports about Jesus. And what does she hear about him? What's he been doing so far in Mark's gospel? He's been teaching, hasn't he? He's been healing. He's been delivering. This is what he's been doing. This is what she hears. And so what does she do? She wants to get close to him. And she says to herself in her mind, if I can even get a hold of his clothing, of his garments, then I may be made well. I may be healed. So on the basis of what she hears, she comes to him and touches his garment. Now why would she grab a hold of his garment Commentators suggest there's possibly two reasons. First of all, maybe she's just operating under superstition. Maybe there's some kind of magical superstition that she's believing in. But if that's the case, if it's just some superstitious act rooted in magical myths that this woman believes, then why in verse 34 would Jesus describe her act as an expression of faith, of reaching out, of grasping? He says, well, he says daughter, your faith has made you well. Not your superstition, not your myth, not your conjecture, but your faith has made you well. Why would Jesus describe her action as an expression of faith? Because I don't believe it's a magical superstition that this woman's believing in, but I believe she looks at Jesus and in him sees her messianic hope. And here's why. In the Hebrew language, the word knaf, don't try to say that three times fast, but the word knaf, is used in, uh, throughout the Old Testament to describe several different things. One is to, to describe wings. So in Isaiah 6-2, it says above him, when, when Isaiah has his vision of God in the temple, you with me? Okay, so when he has this vision of God in the temple, it says above him stood the seraphim, each had six knafs or wings 
With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. It's also used to describe the extremity or the border of something. It's used to describe the borders or the extremities or the ends of the earth. Right? So in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 10, it says, From the kanafs of the earth, the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But it's also used to describe the border or the hem of a garment. So in Deuteronomy 22, verse 12, it says, You shall make for yourselves tassels on the four corners of your kanafs with which you shall cover yourself. Right? The hem of the garment should have these tassels attached to it at the corners. So this idea of the knafs being the hem of the garment. And then you get to Malachi chapter 4 verse 12. And I want you to hear what's written about the Messiah. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his knafs. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. Now most translations render that word wings. But whenever that word falls on that woman's ears and she sees Jesus passing by, she reaches out to grab the knafs of his garment, the hem of his garment, believing that even there, there would be power to bring healing to her because she believes this is the one who had been foretold. This is the one that she was waiting for to come. She had heard that he was teaching. She had heard that he was healing. She had heard that he was delivering. And she reaches out in faith because she believes Jesus is the Messiah. And that's why Jesus says, daughter, go in peace and be well. Your faith has made you whole. All human wisdom exhausted. All human hope is gone. And she reaches out to take the hem of Jesus' garment because she believes that he is the one who had been foretold. And listen, church, I want you to know something this morning. That faith that she expressed, that active trust in the face of her exhaustion, in the face of her despair of believing on Jesus as the Messiah, as the one in whom all her hope was found, is the same kind of active trust that Jairus needed when Jesus looks at him and says, don't be afraid, only, what? Believe. Put your trust in me, Jairus. Put your trust that I can bring her back from the dead. That's the kind of faith Jairus needed. And you know what? In our waiting, that's the kind of faith that we need as well. Whenever God seems to be delaying, whenever God's timing does not seem to be in alignment with ours, whenever God's schedule frustrates our schedule, listen, I might just be preaching to myself this morning. Many of y'all may never feel that, okay? But listen, when that happens in your life, what you and I both need is an active trust because the delay eventually leads to the exhaustion of all your wisdom. Like you don't know what else to do. You ever, have you, anybody else ever been there? Right? You don't know what else to do. And ultimately, it leads to the despair. All human hope is lost. I don't know where else to turn. I can't expect anything good from anyone. I've looked in, behind, around every corner and under every rock, 
tried every remedy, and nothing seems to be making a difference. And the same thing that Jesus says to Jairus, he says to us, do not be afraid, only believe. Active trust. Active trust, church. Not passive resignation to your situation, but an active trust that God is able to intervene and take that which is dead and bring it to life. That God is able to intervene and take that which has plagued you for years and dry it up. That God is able to intervene and take that situation that you have grieved and bring it full course to where now you may rejoice with joy. God is able to bring that in your life. And He says, and you need an active trust that you continue every day when you wake up and every night when you lie down to look to Him as the object of your hope, to look to Him as the source of your joy, to look to Him for wisdom and healing, to look to Him for life, abundant and free. And if you're going to do that, though, what, to have that kind of active trust, listen, church, what I need and what you need is to see the love and the power of Jesus at work. First of all, I want you to see his, his love. I want you to see his affection. Look, when Jesus enters Jairus' home, he finds a commotion. Because, listen, in those days when important people or those connected to important people died, they had, like, professional mourners that came in. Okay? You ever seen a jazz funeral in New Orleans? Something like that, okay? Where they're walking the streets, they're in the home, they're wailing and they're weeping, raising a loud commotion, grieving the loss of the important person of those who were connected to them. They made a big deal of mourning their deaths. And Jesus walks up and he asks them, why are you creating all of this commotion, the weeping and wailing? For she's not dead, she's just asleep. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that she's merely resting she is dead, but for Jesus, death is like a good night's sleep. So listen, they laugh at him and he clears them out. And then alongside the mother and father and Peter and James and John, he approaches the girl's body. And listen what he does. This unclean girl, he takes her by the hand. And he says, arise, arise. Now, little girl here in the text is it's a good translation for our, in, in our English text. But the word Talitha, listen, it's not just a, 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 a disconnected or disassociated term. Right? It's a term of infection, a term of endearment. So it might be better translated, like, if, like when I go into my daughter's room at night to tell her goodnight, or when I wake her up in the morning, I walk in. Right, and that's a whole other battle in of itself, those of you who know. Walk in my daughter's room, and I turn off her little sound machine, and I say, sweetie, it's time to get up. Or baby, it's time to get up. Or honey, it's time to get up. That word Talitha, because of the affection that's often used from a mother to a child, it's not just this disconnected term, little girl. It's a term that would be more roughly translated into our language as honey or sweetie. Or baby. In other words, it's a term of endearment, a term of affection. And Jesus takes her hand. 
Listen, as a Jewish rabbi, he knew that she was dead. He knew she was a corpse. He knew she was unclean. And yet he grabs her hand and he says, Honey, do you see, can you imagine the scene of him whispering into her ear, Sweetie, listen, look at the tenderness and the love and the affection of Jesus. As you imagine, the hands of the one who formed the world is now holding this little girl's hand. The hand of the one who scattered the stars into the sky is now holding this little girl's hand. The hand of the one who formed us from the dust of the earth is now has a grip on this little girl's hand. And he's saying, sweetie, it's time to get up. Arise. Do you see the love, the affection, the tenderness of Jesus as he takes this little girl by the hand? but also see his power. Once again, listen, we've seen over the last several weeks, right? That when Jesus is in the boat and the disciples wake him from the sleep and he looks out over the ocean, or looks out over the waves, over the sea, and he says what? He doesn't say, in the name of the great God of... What does he say? He says, be still. When he stands before the demon-possessed man, he doesn't conjure up the powers that are higher than he because he is the highest power and he says come out and when he's here listen these this is not the wind and this is not demons this is death this is decisive this is final right this is inevitable and Jesus doesn't again Appeal to a higher power. He's not conjuring up some kind of spirit from somewhere else to deal with this. He says, listen, I am power itself, himself. And he says, like he said to the storm, be still. Like he said to the demons, come out. And he says to this little girl, get up. Sweetie, get up. Honey, get up. Do you see the power of Jesus? It's as if Jesus says, listen, when your hand is in mine and my hand is gripping yours, even death is nothing but a good night's sleep. Now let me ask you a question, church. Why would you want to hurry someone like this? Why would you want to rush him along? Someone with such love and affection, such tenderness and compassion, such power that he's able to remedy any situation. Why in the world would you take a cattle prod and try to shock him and get him onto your schedule and onto your timetable? Why would you hurry someone with such love and such power? Listen, as we, kind of, as we draw to a close this morning, I'm going to show you one more thing. I'm going to show you one more thing. Listen, as we said already, touching this child who was dead, she was unclean, should have been off limits to Jesus because of her uncleanness. It would have been, in Jewish custom, would have been transferred to him, and therefore he would have been made unclean. But listen, listen, Jesus goes into unclean places, and Jesus has contact with unclean people, and he does all of that without catching their uncleanness. But listen, 
Listen, so you may, be, you may be asking the question, listen, I know my hands are unclean. I know my hands are unclean because of my sin. So how is it that Jesus could take my hand? Despite all my betrayal, despite all my rebellion, that Jesus would take my hand. How is it that he can do that? And listen, I want you to know something, church. The way, the reason Jesus is able to take your hand, despite your uncleanness and my uncleanness, and say, get up, is because he lost the hand of his father. He lost it at the cross. You see, Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you removed your hand from me? Why have you turned your face from me? See, at the cross, Jesus lost the hand of his father. And you know what happened in that moment? All of my uncleanness fell on him. All of your uncleanness fell on him. All of my sin and all of your sin fell on him. So that despite all of our betrayal and all of our rebellion, that he can still take our hand. And church, I don't know about you, but that is good news. That is good news. That He is able to make me clean. He's able to make me whole. Because He was crucified outside the gate as one who was unclean. So that in His resurrection, He's able to take our hands and raise us to life as well. So let me ask you this question as we close. What are you waiting on from God? What are you waiting on from Him? Some of us may be waiting on phys literal physical healing. Would you, have place, would you have an active trust? An active trust that in Him is all your hope and you're going to wait for Him. Some of us may be waiting not only physical healing, we may be waiting on, waiting on a healing in your family and relationships. What are you waiting on? You're waiting on reconciliation. You're waiting on prodigals to return home. Will you continue to wait with an active trust? Because He is not bound by your schedule. Maybe you're waiting on a marital issue to be resolved. Listen, I want you to know, he is not bound by your schedule. You cannot take a prod and move him along. You cannot shock him into submission. But he will work when he will work. And in the delay, he will teach you about himself. And he will teach you more about yourself. What are you waiting on from God? Whatever it is this morning for you, let me just appeal to you to wait with an active trust in the midst of your exhaustion and in the midst of your despair that you would throw your hands up and say, you are God, I am not. Your timing is sufficient. Your schedule is right. Your providence is unwavering, and I will wait on you.
Let me pray for us this morning to that end that God would give us grace to wait well. Father, we come today knowing that our sinful fallen proclivities, our tendencies is to try to rush you along, to hurry you along. But Father, whenever we see the power of your Son, when we see the love and affection of your Son calling out to us in tender and affectionate ways with terms of endearment as your sons and as your daughters. And when we see your ability to overthrow and overcome any enemy or opposition that would stand against us, including the final one being death. May that fuel our faith to continue to actively trust in you in the face of our exhaustion, in the face of our despair, that we would wait on you. We would wait on you. That we would rejoice in your goodness to us that despite our uncleanness and sin, that you're able to take our hands because you, your son, became one who was unclean for us, was crucified in our place. So that even in our waiting, we would know, we would never doubt that you love us because of the hardships or afflictions, because of the distress that we experience. We would never doubt that you love us because you demonstrated that once for all at the cross. As our Savior, your Son was crucified for us outside the gate as one who was unclean, that we might be made clean. We might be made whole. We might be healed. So Father, help us to wait well. I pray that there be marriages that be restored, there be families that be reunited and reconciled. I pray there be physical bodies that are afflicted with disease in our, in our church. I pray that they would be made whole. Father, I pray there would be souls. I pray there would be souls that are set right. But I pray, God, that you would do it in your time and that we, we would not rush you along. But as we first believe, we would keep believing. We pray in Jesus' name.